We are no less in the hands of the Lord when a storm is raging around us than when it is clear blue skies. Remembering that truth will go a long way in helping us to be peaceful in all circumstances. Don't assume that because bad stuff is happening in your life that God is not near you. It's in the terrible times when He proves Himself most faithful to us. And we'll see this truth illustrated today in the Bible study. So flip over to Matthew chapter 8, and we're picking up in verse 18. Picking up right where we left off last time. You might recall from last time that Jesus has been in the area of Capernaum where huge crowds of people have been gathering to listen to Him teach, and they're bringing many sick and demon-possessed people to Him to be healed. In verse 18 it says here, When Jesus saw the crowd around Him, He gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Jesus is now seeking to get away from the crowds. And we'll actually see Him do this on a number of occasions during His ministry. Why? Why would Jesus want to get away from the crowds? Well, there's the practical reason of needing rest. He's a human being who got tired and hungry just like you and I do. It's hard to imagine the demands for his time and his attention from thousands of people. As soon as he went somewhere and his location was discovered and word got out, huge crowds came and they immediately began to gather and want his attention. The scope of human need was so huge and he was so sensitive to all of it, how he kept from losing it every day during his ministry years is a miracle in itself, isn't it? He also needed time with the Father, time for prayer and listening and quiet thought. The importance and value of quiet and solitude and prayer are often undervalued and overlooked and forgotten by people, especially in this accelerated world that we're living in. We need to hear the Father's still small voice, His gentle whisper speaking to our heart. And that doesn't happen when we have the volume turned up to 11 all the time. We need time to read His Word. We need time to pray. We need time to just think open-endedly without agendas pushing on us. Jesus also needed time to teach His disciples. They were going to be the ones to carry on the work after he was gone and help people understand what it was that he's accomplished for us through his death and his resurrection. And then lastly, there's always been a misunderstanding by many people about what Jesus' mission was. His main mission was not to be the biggest attraction on planet Earth. 
His main mission was not to do miracles of healing, to relieve physical suffering. His main mission was not to be a champion of human rights. His main mission was not to preach against sin. As important as some of these things may be, his mission was bigger than all of that. His main mission was to be humanity's savior. To die as a sacrifice for our sin and come back to life on the third day. To defeat death and make eternal life possible for us. To bring us to life toward God. To change our life from the inside out. Being born again. Creating a new kind of human. Making us like himself. Verse 19 says, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So before Jesus can get into the boat and head to the other side of the lake, a teacher of the law comes up to him and makes this declaration of commitment to him. Maybe the man saw that Jesus and his disciples are getting ready to leave and he wants to come with them. We don't know really what sparked this. But the first question, who were the teachers of the law? Some Bible translations into English use the word scribes. It's the same people, teachers of the law and scribes, same group. These were men who devoted their life to interpreting and teaching the Old Testament scriptures and the traditions of the elders. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them were aligned against Jesus during his ministry, opposing him and among those conspiring to kill him. This man calls Jesus teacher. It's interesting that the people who call Jesus teacher in the Gospel of Matthew are usually people who don't really believe that he's the Messiah. If you go through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice that. And also in the Gospel of Matthew, those who do believe in Jesus as Messiah usually call him Lord. Not always, but there is a general rule in this Gospel that you'll notice that it's, it's, it's almost like Matthew uses that as kind of like a little, you know, clue for us. They call him teacher. They're not buying into everything that Jesus is. They call him Lord. They're on board. This doesn't mean that this man is not sincere in his desire to follow Jesus, but it may give us some insight into who he believes Jesus to be. Jesus is a great rabbi worth following but not necessarily the Messiah. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, this is a tremendous declaration of allegiance and commitment that this man is making. But Jesus, he knows that he doesn't really understand. (laughs) He doesn't really understand what he's making a commitment to. People like to be near those who they perceive to have power and influence. This man may be seeing these rapidly growing influence of Jesus, these huge crowds seeking him out, the power being displayed through the miracles that he's doing. And this man, he wants to be part of that. He wants to be close to it. He wants to be counted among Jesus' group. 
Jesus gives this man a reality check. This man doesn't really understand what he's saying. He's not going to get what he thinks he's going to get by following Jesus. Jesus said to him, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Rather than addressing the man's declaration directly, Jesus describes the nature of his own life as the Son of Man. Everyone has a place to call home. Even the animals and the birds have homes. But the Son of God, who became a human being to save humanity, doesn't have a home here on earth. It implies that Jesus is not of this world. He's from outside of it. God entered into our time and space in the person of Jesus to rescue us. It implies that Jesus is going to be rejected by those who ought to welcome him. The leaders of the people and the teachers of the law, those who studied the scriptures, should have, of all people, recognized and welcomed the coming of Jesus. But they're the ones rejecting him, turning away from him, opposing him, seeking to kill him. It implies that the life path that Jesus has will be unbelievably difficult. No other human being could have done this other than Jesus. Only the incarnate God would have the strength and the power and the discipline to do what Jesus will do. The question that comes to mind, I think, for us is do we understand the commitment that we're making to Jesus when we become his follower? And the answer is not entirely. None of us can. It's not possible for us to understand completely what we're committing to. The Lord doesn't expect us to fully understand the commitment that we're making, though He knows that it's beyond our ability to do that. He's looking for us to be sincere about the commitment that we're making, as best as we can understand it, and then to trust Him, walking with Him each day. It's by degrees that we grow to understand the commitment that we're making in following Jesus. It's by the good grace of the Lord Himself that we are continually growing into and embracing that commitment more and more day by day throughout our life. Our ability to follow Jesus and keep our commitment to Him is something that we can't do in our own strength. We need and we depend on the power of the Lord working in our life to continue to walk with Him. We owe our salvation to Him from first to last and always. Well, verse 21, it says, Another disciple said to Him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So if the first man was overly eager to follow Jesus, failing to appreciate the scope of the commitment that he was claiming to make, then this second guy is under-eager to follow Jesus, saying, I'm not quite ready. This person, he feels the need to take care of some things first before 
he'll be ready to follow Jesus. And namely, he says, he needs to bury his father first. Now, if this man's father was not dead yet, his reluctance may have been him expressing the desire to wait to follow until after his father has passed away. It may be that he fears that his father won't be happy with his choice to follow Jesus. It may be that he fears that he'll lose his inheritance if he leaves to follow Jesus before his father has died. If, on the other hand, this man's father has died recently, then he's expressing the obvious need to take care of the important social and family obligation of burying his father and observing the proper period of mourning before leaving to follow Jesus. Now, based on Jesus' response to him, whatever the particulars are of this man's excuse, it was just that, an excuse to put off making the commitment to follow Jesus with his life. Following Jesus is the most important thing a person can do in this life. It's more important than family ties or social obligations or long-held traditions or financial concerns or fear of reprisal or any other thing that we can come up with. He calls us to follow him without reservation or excuse. Although we may not fully understand the commitment that we're making, we must make that commitment. Is something holding you back from following Jesus? Money? Influence? Prestige? Fear? A relationship? A career? Desire for other things? Jesus challenges all of our excuses and reservations and holdouts. He says, follow me and don't give me any excuses. Twenty-three. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. So after the conversations with these two men about following Jesus, he continues with his plan to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I've got a picture here of a boat. This is a full-scale model of the kind of fishing boats that were in use in the days of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And this boat is similar to the kind that Jesus and his disciples probably used to cross the lake this day. Next is this photo of the Sea of Galilee when it is beautifully calm in the evening. And this is how it may have looked when Jesus and his disciples first launched their boat to go over to the other side. But things change. In verse 24, it says, Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. The unusual geographic setting of the Sea of Galilee, being situated some 700 feet below sea level, it creates an environment for some unusual and severe weather patterns. Sudden storms can come up, as described here in this 
passage. And this storm is described as a furious storm. The Greek word translated furious, it, it means great, loud, huge, violent, fierce. It was actually driving the waves over the sides of the boat, filling it with water. If something wasn't done, the boat would be swamped and sink, and those on board could drown. The disciples are genuinely frightened. It's good for us to remember that at least four of these guys are experienced fishermen who have worked on this very lake for years. They've seen lots of bad weather on the Sea of Galilee. They have been in lots of bad weather on the Sea of Galilee. This is not a bunch of rookie landlubbers getting spooked by a little bad weather. This is a real life-threatening situation that they're in. The disciples, they had probably been looking forward to a leisurely boat ride to the other side of the lake, away from the demanding crowds for some rest and relaxation. But what started out as a three-hour tour <laughs> turned into a nightmare. The weather started getting rough, and the tiny ship was tossed, and it looked like it would all be lost. Now, a side observation I'd like to make here is this, is that I want us to see that storms happen in the lives of everyone, even for the 12 disciples closest to Jesus. They are in the middle of a life-threatening storm, and they are literally only a few feet from Jesus. Bad stuff happening in our life is not an indication that God has forgotten us or that God is mad at us. Bad stuff happens to everyone in this life. It's the nature of this sin-damaged, fallen, broken world that we live in. Christians don't receive a get-out-of-storms card. This is not a game. This is real life. What's different for the Christian? is the promise from the Lord that we will not go through this life and its troubles alone. He will be with us, and He's promised to not allow anything into our life that we can't handle with Him. We're no less in the hands of the Lord when a storm is raging around us than when it is clear blue skies. The second part of verse 24 says this, but Jesus was sleeping. Jesus, exhausted from a long day of teaching and caring for the needs of people, is asleep in the back of the boat. Some might question how Jesus could sleep through something like this storm. And I can assure you that it is entirely possible I have slept through classes <laughs> and family gatherings and baseball games and noisy car rides and dynamic church services. <laughs> and I bet some of you have too. Some of you might be asleep right now. 
The steady rocking of the boat by the waves would have made it that much easier to sleep. Verse 25, it says, The disciples went and they woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. You ever feel like you're in the middle of a furious storm in your life, thinking you're about to drown, and it seems like Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat? Lord, save me, what are you doing? This is a painting by Rembrandt, famous painting of this scene that we're reading about here. And I think it captures the danger and the intensity of the event. You can see the guys who are straining, hopefully you can, that are straining at the ropes and they're trying to take down the sails. You can see the guys talking to Jesus, bringing him up to speed about what's happening. And there's the one poor guy at the bottom of the painting in a red shirt who's barfing over the side, and that's always my favorite part. He's just letting it roll. Verse 26, Jesus replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the waves, the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. So while this storm is raging around them, Jesus, he says to his disciples, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? Have you forgotten who's with you? Jesus speaks to the storm as the sovereign Lord of creation, and it obeys. Everything immediately becomes calm. Jesus is Lord, not only over the church, but over all of creation. He is the creator of all things. He's the controller of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This same Jesus who has the power to control the weather He's at work in our life, too. There's no storm, no trial, no difficulty, no situation that we will face that is outside of his ability to handle it. Jesus asks us the same question that he asked his disciples on that boat. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Have we forgotten who's with us? We're no less in the hands of the Lord when a storm is raging around us than when it's clear blue skies. And the story ends with verse 27. It says, The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. 
It says the men were amazed. The Greek word translated amazed, it means astonished, dumbfounded, in shock, freaked out. Mark's account of this story says they were terrified by what they saw Jesus do. Luke's account of this story says they were in fear and amazement by what they saw Jesus do. These guys, they're not giddy with excitement like they have just gotten off a carnival ride. Instead, they are trying to decide which is more frightening in that moment, the storm or this person sitting in the boat with them. The disciples, they ask each other, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You see, Jesus, he has repeatedly challenged the disciples' understanding of the world and him. The first time they witnessed him heal someone, it it caused them to recalibrate their understanding of the world and what was possible. There have been many times that have caused this kind of rethinking to take place for them. But as time has gone on, they have grown accustomed to and comfortable with a certain level of mystery and the miraculous. But now, all of the sudden, this person who they thought they knew shows himself to be someone or something else they had not expected. Jesus has just jumped out of the proverbial box that they had him in. He's broken the categories that they were using to define him. Their boundaries of understanding have just been shattered. They suddenly realize they're sitting in a little boat with someone possessing overwhelming godlike power in a way they had not imagined before. Is he safe? We each need to have a similar kind of encounter with Jesus Christ, though. An encounter where our neat little assumptions and categories about who he is get shattered. An encounter that causes us to ask the same kind of question that the disciples ask. Who is this? Is he safe? In this modern, arrogant age that we live in, Jesus Christ is often seen as American as apple pie and not much more. First, he's not American. And second, he's the Lord of all creation. And I pray that he breaks through our preconceived notions about him so we can begin to see who he really is and trust him with our life. In closing, I've said this before, we're no less in the hands of the Lord when a storm is raging around us than when it's clear blue skies. Circumstances in our life, they go up and down like the waves of the sea. The Lord is the anchor of our life in the storms. Don't forget 
who's with you. Don't forget who's with you. Psalm 107, 28 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Philippians 4, 6, we're told not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, to present our requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of your people here, that we would not forget who is with us, who's sitting in the boat with us. And you always know what's going on. Always. Are you safe? Yes. We can trust you. Help us to trust you, Lord, even in the middle of the terrible storms that are raging in our life. May your peace come and fill us. May you speak calm into our life. Make it so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.